Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he called you, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of the Lord. We are looking at uh, the first epistle of Peter, and uh, Peter tells us why he wrote this letter <clears throat> to these various churches. In verse 12 of chapter 5, Peter says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter wants to make clear what the true grace is, what the true gospel is, and he wants to encourage his readers and us to stay committed to it. He's concerned with genuine Christianity, both the faith and the practice of it. And so as we look at our passage this morning, we should notice that the tone changes. It goes from indicative to imperative. Commands dominate this passage. Therefore, in verse 13, connects the previous teaching on the living hope you know, we talked about our identity, that we've been born again to this living hope, awaiting our inheritance. We talked about who we are in Christ, elect exiles. And now he transitions, and he tells us that now we have to live like it. So this living hope is now connected to the holy living now. Let's put it into practice, Peter says. Now look at verse 13. It says, Therefore because of what I just said, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now, preparing your minds for action literally means girding up the loins of your mind. Girding up the loins of your mind. Aren't you glad that the translators gave us a slightly different phrasing on this? What does that mean, gird up your loins, gird up the loins of your mind? Well, let me demonstrate. No, kidding. 
Although, if you've ever diapered a baby, this is basically the same process. People used to wear long robes back in those days, and when you wanted to get into any kind of activity, whether it's battle or hard work, you would just kind of grab your robe, pull it up, bunch it together, get it under, over, tie it up, basically like a diaper, and then you're ready to go. So sort of this up, under, around kind of idea, which I think is also the same as the Lutheran view of communion, I think. <laughs> Sunday school joke, if you were in my class earlier, it makes sense to you, but maybe. But the idea here is that you are intentionally preparing for something. And Peter says Christians must mentally prepare to live consistently with our identity. So he's basically saying, get ready, think rightly about who you are in Christ so that now you can live according to who you are. Now, it doesn't happen accidentally. You have to prepare. You have to think through it. You have to understand. You have to put your will into gear. You have to know what this life looks like. So we are to think rightly about ourselves in Christ and then live intentionally. Then he says, be sober-minded or clear-headed. In other words, get rid of the false ideas, get rid of the intoxications of the world and have a, a clear understanding, an alert posture as to how God wants us to live. So this is what Bible essentially calls holiness, is that kind of intentional and alert living where you are intentionally aligning yourself with who God says you are and how God wants you to live. And you're prepared for it. You're, the loins of your mind are girded. You're tucked in. You've rolled up your, your, your sleeves. You're tucked in your robe. You're ready to live differently. Now, Peter is very practical in this letter. But notice how he goes from who you are to what you're supposed to be doing. Now, what's remarkable is that Peter teaches on holiness. That's kind of the theme through this passage is, is holiness, how we are to live. But he uses family language and family images. Now, you probably noticed when Chuck read it, you noticed such words as children, father, inherited, forefathers, born. Now, this is family language, but he's talking about holiness. And biblically, it actually is completely understandable because holiness is intentionally living in the privileges and responsibilities of a child of God. Biblically, holiness is inextricably connected to your relationship with God the Father. In verse 16, Peter quotes from Leviticus 19, verse 2, where God commands, you shall be holy for I am holy. You see the connection? You shall be holy, not for no reason, but because by being holy, you reflect me. You become what, what I am like. Uh, Karen Jobes, the commentator, says, to be holy means that Christians must conform their thinking and behavior to God's character. To be holy means that we must conform our thinking and behavior to God's character. So family language all of a sudden makes sense. 
Peter's saying, be holy. Live according to your identity. What is your identity? It's all tied with your, within your relationship with God and belonging to his household. Now, if you've read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, he has a wonderful passage where this senior demon uh, trains the, the junior apprentice, and he is describing God's strategy of what God is doing and how they can oppose it. And he says, one must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men, God's love for men, and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. So, so demons say, God really does love us, and God really does want us to be free and to serve him out of a pure heart. He goes on to say, he really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. What does God want? God wants to transform us and to make us in reality, in practice, more like the children that we are. Now let's examine this family metaphor and how it relates to holiness as we work through our passage. This is the mental preparation that we need to do and that results in practical holiness. So in verse 13, we see family inheritance. Family inheritance. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first command in our passage. Set your hopes fully on what God will do when Jesus returns, on all the benefits you will receive when Jesus returns in glory. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because we talked a lot about it last Sunday, and actually over the last year or two, we've been coming back to this theme over and over again, meditating on what is ours, what God will reveal when Jesus returns. I just want to emphasize again that what awaits us in the future, that inheritance, that glory that we wait for, must affect us in the present. It is not right to passively sit and wait and be unaffected with the inheritance that God promised to us. The right approach through this mental preparedness, through sober-mindedness, is to expect and wait what God will give us when Jesus returns but then live according to it now. So set your hope on what will shape your decisions and attitudes today. Now, being part of God's family means having the right to an inheritance. Everything God has, He promises to share with us. By already being part of His household now, there are many benefits in our lives right now. But only when Jesus returns, we will have the full experience of all that God has for us. 
And so when you meditate on your future inheritance, that meditation, that mental preparedness increases your desire and resolve to live in holiness now. Now listen to 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, he sh he sh we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then he says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So anybody who hopes that one day we will see Jesus as he is, and we will be transformed, and we will become all that we are supposed to be, if you hope for that, then now, today, you purify yourself as he is pure. When we think about seeing God as he is, we naturally want to prepare for him, to be like him. This is how one pastor from Nairobi puts it. As our longing for that future grows, so does our desire to be the kind of people who belong there. As our longing for that future grows, so does our desire to be the kind of people who belong there. Why do you want it? Why do you want your full inheritance? Why do you think you're going to enjoy it? Because you're enjoying similar things now. Because in your heart there's the desire that can only be fulfilled when he returns. So I'd like to commend to you the old and now largely forgotten Christian practice of meditating on heaven. Meditating on heaven, meditating on the future glory, on the restoration of the world, is an essential tool in pursuing holiness today. The, the image that I had in my, in my mind when I was thinking about it is a little boy who goes into the closet and tries on his father's military uniform. And he, you know, is completely covered by the jacket and, and, and his head is, is not nearly as big as, as, as the hat. And, and yet, there's a sense of, I'm going to grow into it. There will be a time when I will be like my father. And this will fit me. And I will follow him in his footsteps. And even though it doesn't fit him now, that very act of trying it on, that very act of playing with it, actually shapes the character of the child. And he now has a different goal. He has a different purpose. He is, his direction of his life is being shaped by that trying on of his father's uniform. That's what happens when we think about heaven, when we think about the inheritance. It's too big for us now. I don't feel like I'm, I'm fitting in that very well right now, but I will grow into it. And now my life is shaped by that vision, by that dream. Now, secondly, we see family life described here. So we expect a family inheritance, verse 13, and then verses 14 through 18 really 17, I'm going to borrow a little bit from 18, okay? We see family life described. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now notice the contrast between two families. There's the old family from which we were ransomed. We were rescued out of it. And there's a new family. Now, the words that describe our old family, our pre-conversion life, are passions, ignorance, futility. Without Christ, we do what we want, but we don't know what we should do. And whatever we do leads to nothing lasting and true. That's our life before God adopts us into his family before he redeems us. It's a good description of that. Here's another description from the comedian John Mulaney who describes, I, I quote from comedians and Puritans, so you get the, you get the full, full length, people who can't stop laughing and people who never laughed, so we got, got the whole spectrum. But Mulaney describes his, and he's not a believer, he's described his experience of battling drug addiction and kind of coming to the lowest point, and this is what he realized at his lowest point. He said, I don't trust being alone with me. I mean, I'm the person that did all the damage to myself. When you're a drug addict, you're with the person that has tried to destroy you all the time. I don't know if the person in charge of this life has any clue what they're doing. It's a very insightful way to understand how we live without God in our lives. We trust the person, ourselves, who has no clue what they're doing and who actively tries to destroy us. And I'm that person without Christ. And Peter says, don't go back to that life, a life of old values and practices. Don't be conformed to them. Don't return to that. That's futility. There's passions, ignorance, futility. There's no direction there. There's nobody who knows what they're doing. There's nobody in charge who can bring anything good out of that life. Peter says, live according to your new father's values and practices. You've been adopted into this new family, so now live like it. Be holy as your father is holy. Live like your father wants you to live. Reflect him. Reflect the values of this new family. Practice the practices of this new family. Holiness is living as obedient children. It's trust in God our Father to shape our lives. It is intentional participation in God's family life. I remember one person from my church in Chicago, actually Ben Rico's dad, so... If you know Ben, who used to be a worship leader here a few years ago, and maybe you have heard stories about his dad. We called him the most interesting man in the world. So whenever his children, that's six children, so whenever his children would ask him, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? He would always answer, obedience. (laughs) It's a good answer. I don't want a tie. I don't want anything you can buy me. But if you could obey me, that would be great. Isn't that the best response to God's love is obedience? It's not the expensive gifts or impassioned speeches. It's just simple 
obedience. Father, I will do what you tell me to do because I trust you and I know you love me. Now, another idea to explain life in the new family of God is, surprisingly, maybe, fear. Verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And what's the concept here? He is our father who alone can accurately assess all our choices, actions, and attitudes. He alone actually has the objective perspective. He can judge, evaluate, assess, discern what is actually happening and who's doing what and what we're supposed to be doing. He alone can do that. And so if we trust him through obedience, we're basically accepting consciously our responsibility to him. And another way to get at it is the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. Again, a a forgotten concept in the church today. We don't talk about the fear of the Lord nearly enough, but it's all over the Scriptures because that becomes another way to explain holiness, another way to explain obedience, another way to explain the Christian life. Theologians call the right kind of fear of God filial fear. Filial fear, meaning it's it's family, it's relational. It's a kind of attitude exhibited by a child toward their parent. And ultimately, it's rooted in love. Michael Reeves calls the fear of God a love that trembles. A love that trembles. It's the kind of loving reverence or awe or humility, desire to please that actually draws us closer to God and doesn't push us away from Him. So if your fear of God makes you want to run away from Him, that's not the right kind of fear. That's not what Scripture refers to when it talks about the fear of the Lord for believers. The right kind of fear actually draws you deeper into relationship with Him, deeper into the family life of God. Now, the visual for the right fear of God, and I think if you're a parent and you have a child, I think that sweet age is about five or six, I think, for this analogy. You know exactly the expression when they realize that their parents are not joking around. Do you know that? The eyes kind of go big a little bit, and they get really serious. Now, you may have been wrestling with them, you know, and and they're having fun, and then all of a sudden, because you, you tell them something that's important, and it switches, and they're like, uh-oh, they're not messing around. I better do it. I better listen right now. This is not a time to wrestle or to question or to disobey. That's the fear of the Lord. Being in his presence, and yet knowing that moment when you just need to obey. And you know that he means business, and you better listen. That's the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is seeing God as he really is and knowing that he sees everything exactly right. He's the Father who judges everything fairly. And so he allows us to see ourselves as we really are, children in his household. So to fear of the Lord, to to walk in fear, to, to conduct ourselves in fear, means to actually know who we are. Because now you're looking at yourself 
from your father's perspective. Listen to Michael Reeves again. Only in light of God's holiness and majesty do I truly understand how puny, how vicious, and how pathetic I naturally am. In other words, I do not have a true knowledge of myself if I do not fear God. Without that fear, my self-perception will be wildly distorted by my pride and by the messages of the sinful culture around me. It is when we are most thrilled with God and His redemption that our masks slip and we see ourselves for what we really are, creatures, sinners, forgiven, adopted. That's fear of the Lord. You live as obedient children under the Father's authority, accountable to Him, longing to please Him because you love Him and you know that He loves you. I'd like to commend this intentional life in the family of God, in obedience and fear of the Lord to you. Consider your life as part of the household of God, part of His family, as a child of God who obeys and fears his father. Thirdly, there's family history here in verses 18 through 21. Every family, you see, every family has a history. Every family has an origin story. Every family is a family because of things that happened before, choices made by our ancestors that shaped the path of our family. Sacrifices that were made to preserve and to increase the well-being of our family. We remember those who moved and put down roots in our hometown. Those who died in a war. Those who worked two jobs to send their children to college. Those who bought land and built a house. That's all part of how families come together and how families think of themselves. It's interesting that because my mom is here and because, because I've been talking a lot to my brother over the last several months, I'm, re, I'm being reacquainted with our family's stories. And so I remember and sometimes I learn new things of various people that in the past did certain things, made sacrifices, made decisions that affect me today. And that story, in many ways, shapes who I am, my values, my things that are important to me, even some of my practices today. So what is the story of God's family? If we are part of God's household, God's family, what does Peter wants us to remember from the past? Well, verses 18 through 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We were brought into God's family at the cost of Christ's sacrifice. He paid for us literally with his blood. This, this ransom idea, this redemption idea, 
is about purchasing someone out of slavery. That's the Old Testament background. It's paying something to the slave owner to rescue somebody out of that slavery, out of that bondage. And of course, that's the Exodus story. God takes his people and he pays for them to be rescued out of slavery in Egypt. And what's the price? The blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And they're now rescued, and not just from Egypt, but rescued from death and brought into a new inheritance, brought into a new family, becoming God's people. Those who were not people now become God's people. And so this price, the price of the blood of the Lamb, this precious blood of Jesus, is our history. That's our story. We are part of God's family because Jesus paid for us to be with God so that our faith and hope are in God. I heard uh, Jen Wilkin, the Bible teacher, tell a story of witnessing a toddler throwing a huge fit at Disney World. Now, if you've gone to Disney World or Disneyland, you know how expensive it is, how many arrangements you have to make, and then you bring your children there, and there's a lot of pressure to have fun. And sometimes the pressure is too much for children, and they break down. So in this case, this toddler is just probably no nap, right? Terrible food when we went. Gross. And so this toddler is completely losing it. And it's at the point where, you know, she can't really cry audibly anymore. It's just the open mouth and, you know, emotions are not really coming out in sounds. And so this mother grabs the child by the shoulders, as parents do, looks her in the eye and says, we have spent thousands and thousands of dollars to be here. Pull yourself together. <laughs> Which in my experience, that kind of reasoning always works with toddlers. God purchased your freedom with the precious blood of his son. Pull yourself together. <laughs> Gird up the loins of your mind and live a holy life. Stop messing around with sin. Don't forget the cross. Don't forget what God has done for you. And let that history, that, that past, Shape your present and fuel the hope for your future. And then there's family relationships in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Are you surprised that Peter moves from the call to be holy in light of the ransom by Christ to the call to love other Christians? You shouldn't be surprised. Holiness is always worked out in relationships. Leviticus 19.2, which is the quote that Peter uses, right, that passage from Leviticus 19.2 that says that we are to be holy as God is holy. Now, Leviticus 19.3, the very next verse, commands that we must revere our mother and father. Right away, it moves to family dynamics. Right away, it talks about people who are right in our lives, next to us in our households. You are God's child, but God has many children. 
in your obedience to the Father takes place within the dynamics of household interactions. No one can pursue holiness on their own. It's impossible. Think about how many commands of God have to do with how you treat other people. We learn to live as God's children alongside our siblings. Notice the command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We're not talking about restraining yourself from saying something mean to your sister or restraining yourself from punching your brother. We're talking about genuine affection, genuine love for other believers. And it happens in the local church. This is where it actually takes place. Sure, we can proclaim our love for the universal church, but it's this church. It's people who sit next to you on Sunday morning. It's people who are in your Bible study. It's people who call you in the middle of the night because they need something. It's people that you talk to when you need prayer. It's, it, that's, that's the family. That's the immediate family of God that God calls you to love and to love earnestly from a pure heart. Do you love your brothers and sisters at Chatham earnestly with a sincere brotherly love? I want to challenge those of you who have been attending, whether it's in person or online, but you've been here on Sundays, but you've not really engaged in the life of the church or become, in a practical sense, part of our church family. I want to implore you, encourage you, push you to invest in relationships in your church. Invite others to your home. Join a small group. Come to a Bible study. Volunteer to serve. Participate in a ministry. There are so many opportunities for you to get to know other people and for them to get to know you. This is part of your God-commanded pursuit of holiness. If God is your father, then all these people are your siblings. And it's not up to you who your siblings are. These are the people that he adopted along with you. And so now love them and let them love you. And finally, the last thing we see is a family celebration. So we've looked at family inheritance and family life and family relationships, and now it's family celebration. Verses 23 and following. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, we belong to God's family because we have been born into it, spiritually born again through the Word of God, through the gospel, and we've been brought into God's household. And so futility and ignorance of sin here is contrasted with the enduring Word of the gospel. The Word gives you life. You're born again by hearing the gospel by hearing this message of Jesus' ransom and the fatherhood of God and the Holy Spirit's love and care for you and the renewal that comes through His work. And when you hear that and you accept that in faith, 
You're born into this new family. Now, we had uh, Elena's birthday celebration last week, and Elena's, in, my oldest Elena, is in Mexico City. <clears throat> She's there for six months. Uh, we can't visit her. It's a school internship program, and they really want the person to immerse themselves into life and ministry there. And she serves, helps out in an organization. It's a ministry that takes women with special needs, older women usually, off the street and cares for them and provides a home. And there's, I don't know, 170 women or something that live together and they worship together. There's a church, they have, there's classes, there's lots of activities. And so Elena's now become part of that community. So we wanted to celebrate her birthday, so we said, okay, let's have dinner. We'll have tacos. You have tacos is the plan. We'll figure out a way on FaceTime or Zoom so you can kind of be at the table with us. We pulled Zoe in, my second oldest, who's in Chicago at Moody's, so we're like, well, we can connect you. And at that point, you should know, right, that there's too many moving parts here for it to work. And if I'm in charge of the technology... It's not looking very good. So, so I get my phone out, you know, turn off my flashlight, turn off my camera. Nobody does that. I'm, I feel like I always have my flashlight on, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I try to connect to FaceTime. I try to connect to Zoom, and nothing is working. Finally, there's Wi-Fi issues, but somehow, somehow, there's intermittent uh, connection. And so we're at this table, Zoe on the screen, Lainey on the screen, and we're celebrating her birth- birthday. We go around, and we share stories about her and words of affirmation, and, and then we sing the song. And we usually do this Ukrainian song, or we, there's a, we dance around, there's a cake, and, you know, there's all that stuff. It's they've, something they've done since their childhood. And she's there present, virtually, you know, with a lot of interruptions, but somehow she's a part of that. And then she sends us a text afterward, and she says, I'm so thankful for my family. She said, I'm grateful to God that I have a family that would do that, that cares for me, that I feel connected to, because a lot of these women here don't have that. And that contrast of being abandoned, right, versus being accepted, being rejected versus being loved, really struck her. And, you know, when you think about families, birthday celebrations, it's sort of kind of the core, the, the greatest example of family love, maybe? When you get together and you tell stories and you eat together and you celebrate and then you sing a song. And birthday parties shape family identities. For many of us, it's how we celebrate birthdays that we know how we're loved, how we're accepted. Now, when we gather as a church, now this is all in light of this text, I'll make the connection, When we gather to worship on the Lord's Day and preach and sing and pray, we really are having a birthday party. We're all celebrating that this word, this gospel, brought us into God's family. And as this word is proclaimed, we remember our birthdays. As we sing about God's love for us, we remember that we are part of his family. This is a family celebration every week. And we want more and more people to enter our family and to be born into it to celebrate their first birthday with us. The gospel is our birthday song. Instead of happy birthday, 
we sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe.